So I'd like to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. It's going to be a little bit different this morning. I, I, I've got a, a message, I guess, in a sense on my heart that uh, if this is going to go the way I'd like for it to go or it's going to accomplish what I would like for it to accomplish um, from a, I guess, from a teaching standpoint, I'm going to need your help. So I say that to say this, that uh, if I ask a question this morning, it's not rhetorical. I'm, I'm looking for some feedback. I'm looking for some help. I want you to tell me what you actually uh, think, what comes to your heart, what comes to your mind. But first, we're going to read uh, six verses out of Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, Hebrews chapter 3. Um, it's an interesting book for the New Testament. It's almost like a book that that stands out. It's, it's different. Uh, most of the books of the New Testament fall into a few easily definable categories. Right? There is, there are the the historical books, and when I say historical, I don't mean they're old because all of them are old. What I mean is they tend to document historical events. So there are the four Gospels and the Book of Acts, right? And they are very much uh, biographies in some ways. They're, they're telling us the story of the life of Jesus or the life of Peter or the life of Paul. Uh, very much event-driven. You know, this happened and that happened. They're not always perfectly chronological, which is one of the challenges that we face in studying the Word of God. But... You know, very much event-driven stories, and interlaced within them is a lot of teaching. Right? So there, there's that. Then there are what we call the epistles or letters, right? Letters. Uh, the letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, the epistle to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, Ephesians. And even those that bear the names of some of the apostles and some of the writers, like the books of Peter, uh, the books of Timothy, Titus, James, their letters as well, John, right? Uh, maybe not letters to a particular church at a particular location, maybe in some cases to an individual like Timothy or Titus. In some cases, we have letters like the three books of John that are a little more difficult to tell exactly who the who the audience was in its in its initial intention, but letters nonetheless. And then there's that one book at the end, another one that kind of stands out. There is the book of the Revelation, which we call apocalyptic literature. Right? It's it's not meant to be taken literally. That's exactly what it tells us up front that John was shown these things in signs. The, the Lord signified these things. And to me. Then there's the book of Hebrews. It could be a letter, I guess. But it's a little bit different. It doesn't start out with one of those classic apostolic, uh, you know, openings where the writer identifies his audience and then identifies himself. And there's this apostolic salutation. None, none of that, none of that's, there, right? And unlike most of the other epistles within the New Testament that were written to very broad audiences most of the time, usually to both Jew and Gentiles at a particular place, this book is uniquely different in that it was apparently addressed to a very Jewish audience when it was originally written. It goes into great detail, if you will, or, or it goes to great labor to attempt to appeal, if you will, to the Old Testament law and the prophets 
in order to bring us or describe to us really what's going to be our topic this morning, who Jesus is. Okay? Who Jesus is. Make sense? So I, I want to start and read six verses out of chapter 3 in order to talk this morning about who Jesus is. That, that's really what we're, we're going to spend some time on. So let's, let's start there. Hebrews chapter 3. Um, this is an interesting, interesting little section of Scripture. But Hebrews chapter 3, let's start in verse 1. It says, Wherefore? Now, I know it's always bad to start in a place where it says wherefore because it means what we're about to read was based upon something else. You know, it's like starting with therefore, therefore, therefore. What do you mean, therefore? Based on what, right? That's kind of strange. But just bear with me. Wherefore, given everything he said in the first two chapters, is basically what that means. It says, wherefore, holy brethren, <laughs> Partakers of the heavenly calling. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, the first two chapters of this book have been uh, pretty much uh, written in such a way as to establish, if you will, the superiority, the superiority of Jesus Christ over that of the law or any person outside of Jesus. It's been, it's been written in such a way to establish, if you will, or at least put forth the idea that Jesus is uniquely different. I mean, it starts out and says, God who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past by the fathers, uh, under the fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. He says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Wow. Right? Amazingly different. He says, whom... He hath appointed heir of all things by whom he also hath made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better. Do you hear that? being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained, he says, a more excellent name than they. For under which the angels said, at, said he at any time, under which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten unto the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And he continues on and on and on, talking about, first of all, how that Jesus is better than the angels. That's incredible to me. He says here, wherefore, chapter 3, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, he says, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He says, who? We're talking about Jesus. Who? Listen. Who was faithful? Now, I know that's a challenging statement right there. You might think it's easy. But if you dig a little bit, you start to question why we're even talking about Jesus being full of faith, right? Why would, why would Jesus need to be full of faith? I mean, we all, 
We're going to get to this in a little while. We all believe that Jesus is God, and therefore he knows all things, and, he, and he's, he's completely omniscient. He knows everything that's happened and everything that's going to happen. Everything that's ever happened in the world, both present, past, and future, lies before him at one moment. He sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Does anybody understand why the Bible uses the phrase, he is the Alpha and the Omega? You do understand that Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And Omega is the last, not Zeta. We are uniquely American when we think that Zeta is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Every alphabet has to end with Z, doesn't it? No, the Greek alphabet ends with a big O. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end, right? But yet, we're told that he is faithful. I thought faith was necessary when you didn't know. Didn't you? I thought the time I used faith was when I, when I wasn't sure of the outcome of the situation, when I needed to take a step, but I had to do it without all the information. I thought we had to live by faith. I didn't know Jesus was faithful. Well, he is. I don't want to understand that completely. I don't have a complete grasp of it. But I do know that the word faithful also takes on another connotation. And it takes on a connotation that's not related to me acting without knowing. It takes on a connotation of me being being committed to something. Of me not betraying something. When two people get married, we say that they are to be what? Faithful to one another. Does that mean we expect them to to take a step without knowledge. No, what it means is we expect them to keep themselves unto each other and only each other. And that's what the Bible teaches in marriage, by the way, is that we be faithful. And in this sense, Jesus is faithful. He is faithful in that he will not betray his person, his nature. He can't betray his own nature or his own character. I don't know what words you want to use, but notice he says, who was faithful to him that appointed him. That's God, the Father. Jesus Christ was faithful to God who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now, we've already seen that God has established in the first couple of chapters of the book of Hebrews that Jesus was better than the angels in spite of the fact that he goes on to tell us in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews that Jesus chose to be made lower than the angels, that he took upon himself the nature of Abraham, not the nature of angels, that he chose to be allowed to be made lower than the angels, that he might be better than the angels. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of strange to me. Uh, he was better than the angels whether he was made lower or not. He was the Son of God, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit too. But just notice here that now we're moving on to a different subject, and that is that not only was Jesus better than the angels, and boy, this is a challenge for the Jewish mind, he's better than Moses. And that's what he's about to establish. He hasn't yet, but that's what's about to happen. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful, listen to this, in all his house. It's an important turn of phrase that he's going to use here for a little bit, that Moses was faithful in all his house. He says, for this man was counted worthy, this man, Christ Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory, uh uh-oh, than Moses. Now, here's the controversy for the Jewish mind. He was counted more worthy of glory than Moses. Wow. In as much, here's why, though, listen, in as much as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. See what he's saying? This is, this is an allegory. He's saying Jesus has more glory than Moses because Moses was faithful in all his house. Huh? His house, his person. He said the reason Jesus was counted to have more glory than, than Moses is because he that builded the house 
has more honor than, than the house itself. Moses is the house. Jesus is the one that built the house. Right? Interesting. Interesting. He says, For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses, verily, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Interesting. So let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus? Somebody comes up to you on the street and says, who is this Jesus you believe in? What would you tell them? Only begotten son. Wow. Good answer. Only begotten son. Hang on to that one for a little while. Anybody else? God. He's God. God in the flesh. Okay. Person of the Trinity. Savior. Yeah. <laughs> Brother Victor says shepherd. And I heard one other. What was it I heard before that? Creator. That's what it was. Now, we've attributed all these to Jesus, by the way. Don't forget that. Good answers. Good answers. Let's, let's take a few of these. Some of these probably fall into categories that we could probably merge to some degree because of how we understand the Godhead. Uh, I do like this one. Um, this is one of the most challenging parts of, of our understanding of, of the Godhead or God is that Jesus is a person of the Trinity. Now, let's just think about that one a little bit because that's uh, it's, it's not something I really want to dwell on this morning because it really, really wasn't where I wanted to go. But this is one of the most challenging aspects of our understanding of God in general and certainly Jesus more specifically is the concept of the Trinity. Now, we hold a very Trinitarian view. If there's anybody out there listening this morning that doesn't understand who primitive Baptists are or kind of kind of wondering about primitive Baptists a little bit, we are very Trinitarian in our belief system. And it's not because we're primitive Baptists that we're Trinitarian. Uh, we're Trinitarian because we think that's what the Bible teaches, and we just happen to be primitive Baptists because we think they hold to a system of theology that's very close to Scripture. And if they didn't, we wouldn't be primitive Baptists, or at least I wouldn't. I don't know how the rest of you feel, but that's how I feel. I'd find somewhere else to go. Huh? So, so this isn't our theology. This is biblical theology. We've happened to have adopted the name Primitive Baptist because we find that these people who are, for the most part, fly under that banner here in this world today reflect what we think the Bible teaches as closely as anybody we know. Right? And part of that is the Trinity. So when we say that we are Trinitarian, here's what we mean. We mean that there is one God. Brother Victor addressed that a little bit earlier. There are people out there that believe there are multiple gods, and they're not crazy people. We think that's just crazy. They're not. This, is, this has been a problem throughout history. And, and, and honestly, it, how you feel about how many gods there are out there really depends on how you define God or a god for one. 
Because quite frankly, if you just define God as somebody with great supernatural power, then all of the angels would fit into the category of gods in our mind. Because if you met an angel and saw their power on display, you would probably bow down before them just like a lot of other people did throughout the ages of the, of the Old Testament and New Testament where they bowed before angels and yet the angels would say, get up, I'm not God. Well, he looked like a god to me, and it, it would feel like a god to me, to be honest, because they have these supernatural abilities, what we call supernatural abilities, what a lot of people today would call paranormal abilities. You say, well, there's no such thing as paranormal activity. Yes, there is. Just not in the way that most people think. There is a spiritual world. There is spiritual power. There are things going on out there that we can't fathom or understand. I'm not saying that people should be going around with electromagnetic measurement devices trying to figure all this out because I'm not sure that they work on electromagnetic power. I think they work on supernatural power, things that we don't understand, nor could we measure anyway. There's not there. God operates outside of the laws of nature, not through them or in them, Okay. So we say that Jesus is a second person of the Trinity. What we mean is that there are three persons in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and that Jesus is the second of those three that we name. Why do we call it the second person of the Trinity? Is it because the Bible says something about that? No, it's convenience for us because that's the way we read it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. So we call him the second. If we, if we read it, God the Father, God the Holy Ghost, God the Son, we call him the third. Is it make him lesser or different? Or do we believe in some form of subordination because we're putting him second or third? No. It's just a convenience, right? And if you read church history and theology and the development of theology, you'll find that one of the very first things that they struggled over and tried to establish, they began to, to battle over in the, in the early days of the church was they tried to understand this concept of who Jesus is and who Jesus is in relation to God the Father. It took a long time. This is not a simple question. It's not like they had a meeting and in a couple of weeks they hammered out an idea. It took 300 years or more, for them to finally establish the fact, at least in the Orthodox world, outside of some of the controversies, the Aryan controversy and some of the others, there were still people who believed different. There are still people who believe different today. But for the most part, the church settled on an Orthodox view. And that view was that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was equivalent in essence, for lack of a better term, to God the Father that they are, in essence, the same, yet they are still two persons. So I don't understand how that can be. Well, congratulations, you've graduated from Theology 101. I don't always fully understand how that can be either, but it's what the Bible teaches, that these three are one. Okay? So part of getting to that, the fact that these three are one, is, is one of the statements that you all put up here already. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is the fact that Jesus, when we talk about who is Jesus, one of the first answers we ought to come up with is that Jesus is God. Specifically, he's God in the flesh, as somebody said. So we could actually group a few of these together. We could put this up here. He's the second person of the Trinity, which makes him God. Right? Those two probably fit together. So how do we know that Jesus is God? How do we know that Jesus is truly God? Are we just making this up? Is this something that we're just, we're just coming up with on our own? Well, no. Let's go back to the Gospels for a moment. And let's go back to the Gospel of John. It's probably the clearest on this particular subject. When we talk about who Jesus is in relation to God the Father, it is by far the clearest uh, of, of places to go. We're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to talk first about what others say about him. Okay? So we're going to start by talking about what John himself says about Jesus. And remember that John is writing under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. We know that here. He is writing... Uh, as God moves him to write, his personality has not been stripped of him in his writing.
He is writing as God moves him. And if we had access today to what we call the original autograph, which is the actual piece of parchment upon which John picked up a quill and scratched these words out, we would have in our hands what we could call truly the inspired, the original inspired word of God. We don't have that. I have in my hands a King James Bible, and I believe in another doctrine called the doctrine of preservation. So I believe that God has promised, and I believe his word bears this out, that God has promised to preserve his word to his people in every age. And I believe that the King James represents at least one form of that preservation. Notice I said one form. Do I believe that any of the other modern English versions are that preservation? No, I do not. But if I didn't speak English, then the King James would be of little value to me. And it wouldn't be God's preserved work for me. I know that's controversial, but it is what it is. Okay, And somehow God would have to preserve his word for me in another, in another language. And we've seen that happen. We've seen that done in various places in the world. But for us here in this place at this time right now, we don't have to worry about that. Most people here speak English. I think all of us speak English. We may not all understand it perfectly all the time. I may not speak it perfectly all the time. You know, I don't speak English good. Let's put it that way. <laughs> or well, yeah, exactly. Demonstrated my point right off the bat, purpose. So let's read what John says, first of all. And he's saying this under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So this is certainly the word of God. It's in the gospel of John. It starts in chapter 1, and it gives us this statement. It says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. That's, well, great. What does that mean, preacher? Well, just hang tight. Just, just go on the journey with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's easy enough to understand, right? Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They were together. The Word and God were together. That's, that's simple. And then it says, the Word was God. Okay, that now, we're, now uh, things have gotten complicated, haven't they? Because in the beginning there was a Word. And, and that word was with God. But now we're told that word was God. How could it be with God and be God at the same time? Well, this is the great challenge of understanding the Trinity. Well, who is this word? Or is this word a who? That ought to be our first question. Or is it a what? Right? So people go to the Greek and they say, well, the word word here is transfer, translated from the Greek word logos, which means reasoning or mind or something very, very interesting in that, in that realm. There's this, there's this whole study of the word logos. Matter of fact, logos is such a powerful word in the Greek that there are businesses and things named it. Matter of fact, there's an entire Bible software program named after that. It's called the logos software because it is God's. Some people believe that Jesus is God's logos, is the reasoning of God, the mind of God. Well, I think it's more than that. It's way more than that. Yeah, it's kind of fun to get into that study and look at it and see where the word logos appears throughout Scripture and all that kind of stuff, and it's wonderful. But I will agree, this is right here in this place. That's what it's translated from. I don't have a problem with that. But I don't have to go back to the Greek necessarily to understand whether this is a what or a who. Because in the next few verses it says, the same the word, was in the beginning with God. So not only we, did, not only we get a clear indication of, of the fact that this word is with God and this word is God, but we find out when this word started to exist and we're told that it was even there in the beginning, which tells us he's eternal or it's eternal. Things start to get a little more clear in verse 3 where it says, all things were made by him, not it. Personal pronoun. And this is why when we say the Trinity is three persons, this is why we use the word persons. It's because the Bible gives each one of these persons, each one of these members of the Trinity, it gives them personal characteristics. 
First of all, it refers to them by a personal pronoun. Him. In this case, the word is, the, is, the, is what's being referred to by the pronoun him. It says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So the light is an it. But that light was in a him. And that him is the word. And who, now we can ask that question that way, who was the word? Or who is the word? Jesus. How do we know that? Can you prove it? Somebody said, the word was God. But how do we know that word is Jesus? Assuming you've already already been taught the doctrine of the Trinity and assuming you've already, you already believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity, then yes, I would agree with you. But if I didn't believe that to start with, how would I prove that Jesus or the Word is Jesus? How about we just read a little bit for it? How about we go down to verse 14? It says, and the word, this word that was God, this word that was in the beginning with God, this word that is referred to as a him in whom light existed. In verse 14, it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as what? as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what are we told here? We're told that the Word is the Son, the begotten of the Father. No, right. Jake's absolutely 100% right. It's Jesus. It's the only person we know of in Scripture that that this description would fit. Somebody who was made flesh, who dwelt among us, who was full of truth and grace, who was called the begotten of the Father. We could go to many scriptures that, or many, we could go to several scriptures that show that Jesus is referred to as the only begotten Son. Somebody said that right away. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. because That's an interesting statement, by the way. More challenging than a lot of people realize. So the first thing we've established here is that Jesus, or at least John refers to Jesus as being the, uh, the, uh, uh, as being God. He is God. In the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That was our intention was to establish this fact. But in order to establish that Jesus is God in this case, we have to establish that the Word is Jesus because it says the Word is God. We've established that the Word is Jesus, therefore, The Word, or Jesus himself, is God. But that's not the only place that's actually said. Let's go to John chapter 10. Let's go to John chapter 10. Let's look at verse 30 for a second. This is is in that whole shepherd dialogue. Uh, But Jesus makes this comment. It says, I, chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father, he says, are one. I and my Father are one. Now you say, well, that doesn't make him equal with God. That just, that's, that's Jewish tradition that sons and fathers bear the same authority as their fathers as they get older, blah, 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 blah. Well, if you don't understand it, then at least listen to how the Jews understood it at the time. Because it says in verse 30, 31, it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They took up stones the minute he said, I and my Father are one. Now, why did they do that? Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? I've done a lot of good things, he says. Which of these good works do you, are you taking up stones against me for? And it says, the Jews answered him, saying, for a good work, we stone thee not. Well, there's good news, right? We're not going to stone you for a good work. I don't count that as good news. 
I don't care why somebody's going to stone me to death. It's not good news. You know, it doesn't matter whether they're stoning me for a good thing or a bad thing. It's still not going to feel too good, right? He says, and they said, look, for a good work, we stone thee not, but for blasphemy and because that thou being a man, listen to the wording of this, makest thyself God. So when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, they understood that very specifically to be that Jesus was saying, and notice Jesus didn't deny it, that Jesus was saying, I am God. I am God. So not only did, did John say that Jesus was God, Jesus himself said it. And this is why when we talk about Jesus and people say, well, he was just a good man or he was a prophet. No, you can't have it that way. Jesus was either the son of God and God himself or he was a, 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 a lunatic that was delusional. It's one or the other. You can't have one. If you don't have it one way, you have to accept the other because he claims to be God. If somebody walked up to you on the street today and said, hey, I'm God, what would you decide? You've got a choice to make. You're either going to believe them, which is unlikely, or you're going to conclude that they're delusional. Right? Now, if Jesus hadn't already returned, then I might give you some counsel that said you might want to be a little more open-minded about the possibilities. But since Jesus has already come back and been here and lived on this earth and dwelt here, I can accept the fact that for the most part, when we see somebody claiming to be a God or claiming to be the Messiah, that we think there's a problem. Several years ago, I was driving to work when I lived in, in South Georgia, and I commuted to Jacksonville, Tennessee, Jacksonville Florida. And, uh, and I didn't listen to the, to the uh, traffic reports on the way down because, quite frankly, most of my drive was interstate. And though people complained about traffic in, in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, having been a former resident of Atlanta, I thought they were hilarious. <laughs> And, and what, what I did learn, though, and the reason I thought it was crazy is because, quite frankly, the traffic problems in Jacksonville at that time were not interstate-based like they are in Atlanta. In Atlanta, it's the interstates. You don't need the interstates. You, you know, I tell people, until you've sat in seven lanes wide traffic for 30 minutes and have only moved 20 feet, don't talk to me about traffic, right? And that happens on I-75 South all the time. It's seven lanes wide. Now, who decided that uh, making a seven-lane interstate funnel down to three to go under 285 made sense? I don't understand. Obviously, there's something about traffic engineering I don't get. That didn't make sense to me then. It doesn't make sense to me now. But in Jacksonville, the problem of traffic is not on the interstates. It's on the surface streets. And I was very fortunate and blessed that when I drove to work, I was able to shoot through Jacksonville on all interstates, get off at one exit, and literally drive a mile to the place I work. So I never listened to traffic reports. And every now and then, something would happen. And one day, I'm driving into work, and it just came to a standstill on the north side of town. And I, I, I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't move. The, I was stuck. Call into work and tell them I was going to be late. They're like, oh, yeah, you, if you're on the interstate, you're not going to get here. I'm like, what's going on? They said, turn on your radio. Listen, please. So turn on the radio. Come to find out. There was a shooting in the middle of the interstate on my way to work out in front of me. And what it was, was there was a man on the interstate, and they'd called the police. There was a man walking on the interstate, and he was, he was waving his arms, and he was screaming and hollering. And come to find out what he was doing is he, he claimed to be Jesus. He was having a mental problem. And, and a police officer pulled up to try to encourage him to get off the, get off the interstate, just putting it mildly. police officer got out, blocked traffic a little bit, and in the one lane the guy was standing, the guy was running back forward. It became apparent this guy was going to get hurt, or at least if the officer was worried the guy was going to run out in front of a car. So the officer went back to his patrol car to call it in. And while he was sitting in his patrol car, the guy busted the windshield, window out of his driver's side of the car, and, it, and he didn't know what was going on. It, he said it sounded like a bullet had just come through, and he pulled his weapon and fired twice through the window. And, and it killed the guy. There was fatality. So you can imagine the entire interstate was roped off. There was an investigation going on. So you're not getting through there, right? But this guy obviously had problems. 
I was called one time myself. My wife can tell you, I didn't do this very often, but I was called one time myself to go visit somebody that was in a mental institution. It's not one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. I can tell you right now, very uncomfortable. I've done this on multiple occasions, but one in particular case, it was a lady that I went and visited in a, in a mental institution, and I sit down with her, and she began to talk to me about how this was not her fault. This was not her fault. And, and she, she continued, the family hadn't told me what was wrong with her either. They just wanted me to meet with her, and I met with her, and I'm listening to her, and she's going on and on about how these people are persecuting her, and blah, you know, all this, there was this huge persecution pop, complex. She even used the phrase crucified at one point. And, and when I left there, I told the family, I said, there's a serious problem here. She's having a break with reality. This is, you've got to, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but I'm, I'm, I believe this woman is schizophrenic and she is delusional and it won't be long that she'll be claiming that she is the Messiah. And that's kind of where it went, you know. I mean, she was having a serious problem with the grasp of reality. And, and, and that's, you know, if you don't believe that Jesus is the cross, when you read his claims, your only other alternative is not to conclude that he's a good man or that he's a prophet. Your only other alternative is to believe that he's delusional. I believe that he's the son of God. I believe that he is exactly what he said he was. I believe he is God. And that's the first thing that I think every person needs to understand about Jesus is that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God. And as God, something that Brother Jim pointed out, he is the creator. That's something we uniquely associate with God the Father, is it not? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you know that the Bible attributes creation to Jesus as well? We read it right there in Hebrews chapter 3. When he talked about that Jesus built the house, right? We read it again in John chapter 1 where it says, Without him, nothing was made. He is the creator. So how do we know that Jesus is equal to God? It's because the Bible attributes everything that it attributes to God the Father. It also attributes to God the Son. Interesting, isn't it? To me, that's interesting. Let's talk about this one for a minute. Jesus is the only begotten Son. Is that true? Absolutely. We just read it, didn't we? In John, it actually said that he's the only begotten of the Father. Isn't that right? So let's, let's look at a few other places. Let's go to, let's go to 1 John for a second. Uh, one, of the, one of the epistles. Let's go over to 1 John uh, toward the end of the New Testament. And let's look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and let's look at verse 9. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 9. And this was the manifest the love of God that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. His only begotten son. Are you hearing that? His only begotten son. How many other children does God have? Is anybody going to say none? No. Wow. Yeah. Think about it. So what does that phrase mean? I mean, your initial thought when you hear the phrase only begotten son means the only. We focus in on the word only, don't we? But aren't you born of the Holy Spirit too? Yeah, but the word born there means conceived. So, Don't we all come forth from the Holy Ghost? Do, do you really think it only means that he was begotten of him via the Virgin Mary? That that's what makes this statement true? 
Aren't we all children of God in a sense? Aren't we all His Son? Aren't we joint heirs with Jesus Christ, therefore born into the same family? So what does it mean? Well, fortunately, the Bible gives us a clue as to what it means. And we can find that clue in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 for a second. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at the clue. What what is it that this phrase, only begotten, really means? So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's go to verse 17. It says, by faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, offered up Isaac. I'm actually, I'm in the wrong place. What verse am I looking for? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Where does it call uh, Isaac, Abraham's only begotten son? Am I just not reading far enough in it? Yeah, I see it now. Whoa, I'm just blind. (laughs) By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Was that Abraham's only son at that time? Who was his son also? Ishmael. Was Ishmael conceived of Abraham? Yes. Is Scripture wrong? No. First rule of of studying the Word of God is what? It's never wrong. The second rule is there's no contradictions. Right? So we got to come up with an alternative explanation. So only begotten doesn't necessarily mean only child. Because that's what goes in our head immediately. We focus on the word only and we say singular, individually, the only one. It doesn't mean only one. So we have to throw that definition out because obviously it doesn't mean that. If it does, then it's lying to us here in Hebrews eleven seventeen, Right? Must mean something else. What could it mean? Unique. Different. The only son of God that was uniquely his son. Eternally his son. Jesus is the son of God in an only begotten sense, in the sense that he is unique. He is different than every other son that God has. How is he different? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's equal to God in essence. He is God. There's a whole lot of other ways he's unique and different than we are. He's not different that he's a son. He's different because of all the other characteristics. So Isaac was unique. He was uniquely the son of Abraham. Why? Because he was born out of Sarah, who was truly Abraham's wife. And he was born out of Sarah at a point that she was well beyond the ability to have a child. In other words, Isaac was a child of the miraculous power of God. Whereas Ishmael was born to a woman who was well within childbearing years. To Abraham at an age when he was certainly capable. And they came together and they had a child and nobody was surprised. Because that's what happens when a man and woman get together when they're in childbearing years. But Sarah and Abraham had Isaac at a point when everybody went, how did that happen? That's a miracle. So Isaac was the unique child of God. The Bible refers to him this way. He was the child of what? Promise. He was the child of promise. And Ishmael was what? The child of bondage. So Isaac was the only begotten son of Abraham, not because he was Abraham's only son, but because he was uniquely born out of the promise of God. And Jesus is the only begotten son of God because he is the unique son of God, being the only one who is the second person of the Trinity. None of us will ever occupy that position. Okay? 
So first thing we learn is that he is God. That's the first thing we know about Jesus. The second thing that's important for us to understand is that he is the only begotten son of God. In other words, he is uniquely the son of God in a way that nobody else will ever be God's son. Not that God didn't have other children. He has billions of them. We are all sons of God. The Bible says that to us. If we are born in the spirit of God, we are sons of God. But Jesus is uniquely his son in a different way. And then the last thing that somebody mentioned, I think these three, these two kind of go together. He is the savior of sinners. He is the shepherd. And that is certainly too, true. You go back to Isaiah, one of my favorite scriptures, and we'll try to draw this to a close here in just a second. But if you go back to Isaiah for a second, in chapter 47, uh, here's the word that the Bible uses that I love so much. It's one of my favorite, favorite terms. In Isaiah 47, verse 4, it says, As for our Redeemer. I love that word. I love the fact that the Bible calls Jesus Savior. I know that. We're gonna, we talk about that in Matthew 121. Matter of fact, that was here on my notes. Matthew 121. We've heard that before. Even Jake mentioned that last week in, in, his, in his time here in the pulpit. He mentioned Matthew 121. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What does the word Jesus mean? Savior. Right? It's another word, another version of the word Joshua. It means Savior. But I love this one too. Redeemer. I love the term Redeemer. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And again, we see here how that Jesus, the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Redeemer, the Savior, is tied back to his identity as a part of the Godhead. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Redeemer. How is it that Jesus is the Redeemer? Well, I'll tell you how it is. God created us. That's a shocker for you, isn't it? God created us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God created everything there is. He's the one who builded the house. God created us. I belong to God even in the beginning. Every one of you belong to God even in the beginning. However, sin corrupted our soul, our body, our mind. Sin corrupted our spirit. Sin separated us from God. Jesus was sent into the world to buy us back to redeem that which was lost. To redeem that which was lost. He didn't come into the world to redeem everything or the entire human race. He came into the world to redeem those that belong to God amongst the elect. Now, all of them belong to God in the sense that he created them, but some of them belong to him uniquely as children. And Jesus came to buy God's family back. He is our Redeemer. So who is Jesus? It's a good list, by the way. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And he is the Redeemer of them that are lost. And I pray that God will imprint those things on our mind in such a way that we can rejoice in them. 